0: Hi, thanks for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. We are a place where everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. We're a community of people who believe in God and truly believe that he will do things in the Bay Area. So our hope this week is that you will be able to connect with him and hear what God has to tell you. So enjoy the rest of this message. So I'm going to do a little bit more of an introduction in a moment, but uh, Connie, it's okay if I say uh, Connie? By all means. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, that hymn and music and faith and how they're so deeply connected with you.
1: Well, music and faith are completely deeply connected with me from the time that I was a little girl. My grandmother was a piano teacher. Mm. And uh, I stayed at her house while uh, my parents worked, and there was no more devoted follower of Jesus Christ than my grandmother. As a matter of fact, sometimes when I'm thinking about my own spiritual development, I just have her face in mind, and I think, just Mm. let me be that faithful the way that she was. And one of the ways that she showed that was through her music. And so we all took piano lessons. Everybody had to take piano lessons. I really took to it. (laughs) But not only did we take classical piano lessons, but we had to play hymns as a part of our training. And uh, the very first hymn that I played was What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That was the first one that she taught you. Love that song. And uh, this was another one that she loved and played. And uh, we, we did it at her funeral because it was really so special wow. to her and therefore so special to us. So I need the every hour. What great words. What, uh, what a special thought that we can I, come I to Christ every hour. I had a
0: teacher, David Hubbard, who used to say, uh, through the centuries, most people have learned theology through hymns. Right. right. And it's a funny thing. It was true when my dad died this last year when you gather around somebody's bed, especially in their last moments, and you can't do anything else, and the spoken word isn't able to accomplish much, you sing.
1: Absolutely, you know, yeah. John, and to that point, my father um, had lost some of his function as he was dying. He'd had an anoxic brain injury, and so he was barely able to communicate. But all of a sudden, he would start singing, and he was a minister, as you yeah. know. And uh, his favorite song to sing was, I Come to the Garden Alone. My grandmother's favorite song. And he he would never miss a word, despite the fact that he couldn't communicate very well, that Mm -hmm. uh, just simple life was hard for him. Those songs were there. So there's something that's uh, deep in us about that great music. So sing your faith. Yeah, sing your faith. Yeah.
0: So uh, I want to welcome uh, anybody who's joined us during this service. Uh, If you're part of the Menlo family and you'd like to give, there's a way you're able to do that. You can... Click on the uh, line up at the top of the screen, and um, uh, uh, that will be really important for us, especially as we go through these days. We want to um, stay connected with everybody. So actually starting this Wednesday, we are going to um, create an online devotional resource, and we will be sending an email about that. It's called Hope Starts Here, and we're going to walk with Jesus right up through Easter Uh, there's another wonderful old song that talks about the goal is, I want to see you more clearly, love you more dearly, follow follow you more more nearly. nearly. And uh, that's actually what we're going to be doing every day between now and Easter. So I hope you're a part of that journey with us. Now we get to welcome Dr. Condoleezza Rice. And you all know she's been Secretary of State, National Security Administrator, Provost of Stanford. Uh, She began to learn French, figure skating, and ballet at the age of three.
1: Well, French a little later than that, but yeah. it's all right.
0: I must have come
1: from Wikipedia, you uh, know.
0: <laughs> Wikipedia is not quite accurate, no, is that what you're saying? quite you accurate. You can't completely right? trust online. That's right. Uh, Russian scholar, I <laughs> think it's safe to say, <laughs> oh. and uh, uh, played with Yo-Yo Ma uh, uh, and has recently agreed to take over as director for the Hoover Institution right. starting in September. That's correct. So we want to be praying for that. Uh, she's also part of our church and uh, has been for many years back at least into, back to the 90s?
1: The 80s. To the I, 80s. I first came to this church in uh, 1983. Wow. Uh, it's in fact kind of an interesting story about faith. Um, I had always been in church Yeah. from a little, little girl. My dad was a minister. If you weren't in church on Sunday, something was wrong. I remember when I had chicken pox and we couldn't go to church and I thought, this must be really serious. We're not <laughs> going to church. So I had always gone to church, but um, I moved out here in 1981 and you know how it is. You move away from home and, and I was always on some other time zone because I was traveling and mm-hmm. I fell away from church. And uh, one Sunday around church time, I was in the Lucky Supermarket on Alma and a man walked up to me and he was a black man and he said um, he was getting some things for his church picnic mm. and he said, do you play the piano? And I said, well, yes, I play the piano. He said, uh, my little church down here, Jerusalem Baptist Church, needs somebody to play the piano. Would wow. you come play the piano for us? So I said, okay, I'll come play the piano. So I did for about six months. It was a little hard for me because um, I'm classical, a mm-hmm. classical pianist. I don't really play gospel. My mother had played mm-hmm. in Baptist churches. And so I called her and I said, mother, Um, the minister starts in no known key and I'm supposed to find him. What am I supposed to do? She said, honey, play and see, they'll come back to you, which turns out to be right. But the fact is, after about six months there, I thought I need to get back to my faith. I've always been uh, Presbyterian and uh, my grandfather was a Presbyterian minister. And I started looking around and I came to this church and Walt Gerber was giving a sermon about the prodigal son, but he was giving it from the perspective of the elder son. who had become complacent and wasn't really questioning anything, but he just expected everything. He was kind of entitled in Mm. Walt's rendering Mm. of this story. And I thought maybe that's a little bit me, because I think God walked in and reached into the spice aisle of the lucky supermarket to bring me back, so maybe I'd better bring back. And I've been a member at Menlo ever since.
0: Well, uh, I love that story, and I love the way you never know where you are or who God will use to speak to you. And uh, uh, part of what's wonderful about uh, Condi's involvement, uh, she is actually at the Midland Park campus, 8.30 if you're in town, you'll be sitting back in this room. And uh, a lot of people wonder, what does Condi eventually want to do with her life? A lot of people have suggested you ought to be president or vice president, or maybe you want to coach an NFL team or something. (laughs) Uh, Actually, Uh, I think I'm the only one that knows your ultimate ambition, and it has to do with the church, like your final position you want to be.
1: I want to be a church lady. Yeah. And uh, And tell everybody what a church lady is. A church lady, again, if you're a minister's daughter, you know that church ladies are very important in the church. They were always the ones who were there to volunteer to set up communion. Uh, they were there back in the old days, you had to mimeograph the bulletin. Yep. they were always there to mimeograph the bulletin. Uh, they were there to keep the kids at kindergarten to teach uh, to teach Sunday school church ladies and mm-hmm. I want to be a church lady
0: well, uh, I have a little surprise for you. Um, you have many honorary degrees if Wikipedia is to be believed <laughs> but you don 't have this one i 'm pretty sure okay. this is from uh, it's in Latin, but Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. This certifies that Dr. Condoleezza Rice has received the honorary title of Ecclesia Domina, which is Latin <laughs> for church, church lady, lady. Yeah. and is entitled to all the rights and privileges thereto, dated this 15th day of March in the year of our Lord, 2020. Oh, that, so, that
1: is incredibly special. No, Thank I know you. it is. Yeah, I know it is. Go right on Lots my of my stuff gets yes. thrown away, yeah. but that this, one... This one won't. That's prominent right. place. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. So, You're up for the church lady job. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, A lot of people right now are experiencing uh, fear, and we're in such a unique moment of time. And uh, so I thought we might start, uh, Condi, with your own faith story. Uh, You grew up as a young girl in Birmingham, Alabama. Yes. And uh, 16th uh, 16th Street Church uh, was bombed when you were a young girl, and I know that's quite a personal story for you, yes, yes. and fear has been something uh, that has threaded its way uh, through the circumstances of your life and in ways that have also involved faith. And yeah. I think this would be a wonderful time for people to hear about that.
1: Of course. Um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, it was the most segregated big city in America at mm-hmm. the time. I was uh, born in 1954, so Jim Crow was still very much in, in place. You couldn't go to a movie theater, couldn't go to a restaurant. And yet, I grew up in this loving little community uh, where it was faith, family, and education. My parents were teachers. My dad was also a Presbyterian minister. And so it felt like a little safe cocoon. And then came 1962 and 1963, and suddenly Birmingham was bombing him. And bombs were going off in neighborhoods all the time. And I can remember coming home one night from my grandparents' house. Uh, They lived outside the outskirts of uh, Birmingham. Coming home and and a bomb went off someplace. And and everybody knew in those days what it was. And my father turned around the car and my mother said, where are you going? He said, I'm gonna go to the police. She said, the police probably said it. Because those were the days when Eugene Bull Connor was the police commissioner and you could not trust the police in Birmingham, Alabama. And so um, we lived with that fear. I think parents lived not knowing if they were going to put their kids to bed, were they going to wake up the next morning. And then the worst happened. We were in church that Sunday morning. We always got there a little early. My mother was minister of music. My dad was the minister. And we were there. And all of a sudden, the church shook. And some of those church ladies were there helping Mm -hmm. uh, to prepare the service. And again, everybody knew it was a bomb, well, of course, before cell phones, well before people could communicate. But by phone tree, word started to come that it was uh, 16th Street Baptist Church. And then before long, word began to come that it was four little girls, that they were in the basement of the church getting ready for Sunday school, and that somebody had set a bomb. And then the names of those little girls would start to come out and uh, Denise McNair was one of them. I have a picture that I treasure of my father giving Denise McNair her little certificate for graduating from uh, kindergarten mm. at our church. Addie Mae Collins was in my uncle's homeroom at Brunetta C. Hill Elementary School. He said when he went to, church, went to school the next day and just her seat was empty, he just broke down. Everybody knew one of those little girls, and so it was very personal. I, I knew and believed my parents could could afford off anything. I trusted them. But that night I asked to sleep in their bed. It was fear. Um, All we could do in those days was to pray and I have to say it was sufficient. Hmm. It was sufficient to calming my parents. It was sufficient to calming me and my friends. Uh, In those days you could start off school with prayer, Mm -hmm. and we started off every class every day with prayer. And of course, it wouldn't stop there. Um, We would have that year, um, of course, the assassination of of John Kennedy, Mm -hmm. and a few years later of Bob Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and uh, Martin Luther King, and it just seemed to keep coming. But through all of it... um, my, my parents were just secure in their faith, and they somehow communicated that
0: Remember us. you said your dad sometimes had to sit out on the porch?
1: Absolutely. In the bad days during the 62-63 period, white night riders would come through the community. And as I just said, you couldn't trust the police. Yeah. They might have been the white night riders. And um, my father and his friends organized a little uh, militia. With their own guns. They would go to the head of the community, and uh, we lived in kind of cul de sac. They would go to the top of the community, and they would ward off uh, night riders. Mm. Uh, They'd fire into the air occasionally. I don't think they actually ever fired at anybody, but it kept the neighborhood safe. And so uh, you were very much on your own. So
0: you were a little girl. I was a little girl. With your dad having to be on the porch
1: Having to be on watch at night.
0: Wow. Another uh, part of your faith story that uh, was just very touching when I heard it was how you became not just a follower of Jesus, but in particular, a Presbyterian. Yeah. How did that happen?
1: It became, I became a Presbyterian as did my whole family, thanks to education. Mm-hmm. It, back in um, 1919 or 1920, my grandfather on my father's side, John Wesley Rice, Sr., he was a Methodist, obviously. And... Um, he had been taught to read by his mother, who was a freed slave. Hmm. And uh, she taught him to read, and he, he was just a bookish kid. And he decided he wanted to get book learning in a college. Wow. So he asked how a colored man could go to college. They said, well, they had this little school about uh, 30 miles from here, it's called Stillman College. It's a Presbyterian school. They train colored men. Now, he was living, growing up as a sharecropper's son in Utah, E-U-T-A-W, Alabama. I'm not, not kidding. Utah, Utah Alabama. Alabama. So he said, okay. He saved, saved up his cotton. He went off to college. Second year, they said, so how are you going to pay for your second year? He said, well, I'm out of cotton. They said, you're out of luck. He said, well, how are those boys going to college? They said, they have what's called a scholarship. And if you wanted to be a Presbyterian minister, you could have a scholarship too. He said, that is exactly what I had in mind. (laughs) And so my Methodist grandfather became a Presbyterian minister, educated by the Presbyterians. Uh, My father would then go to seminary at Johnson C. Smith University in North Carolina, which is also a Presbyterian seminary. And uh, my uncle, my mother's father, he started converting my mother's family. My uncle Albert would then become a minister, a Presbyterian minister as well. And wow. so uh, we, we have a long line of them, but it, it was all about getting educated. And, and you know, John, they cared a lot about the life of the mind. Yes. My my father and grandfather, I, I, I didn't ever meet my grandfather. He died a mm. couple of years, a couple of uh, months before I was born, but... They always talked about the importance of studying the scriptures. Uh, they always talked about really understanding in depth the context yeah. in which this was made. And so for them, the study of the scriptures, using your mind, was yes. was really important. And I've always come to believe that, that one of the reasons that I never went through some of those crises of faith that uh, people like me who go through higher and higher levels of education... It was thanks to my dad. Mm. From the very beginning, he let me ask questions. From the very beginning, he he would acknowledge that there were hard things yeah. about our faith. That it wasn't um, what I call, uh, you know, fast food faith. That mm-hmm. it, you really had to struggle with it. Um, our first actual theological discussion was when I was about four. He had given a sermon, and I came home and I said, Daddy, you pronounced that man's name wrong the whole time. And he said, who? And he said, I said, everybody knows it's Job. <laughs> and he preached on Job, of course. So from that time on, wow. he would engage me in theological discussion. Wow, so
0: you were interested in faith and work Early on, early on, yeah. Early on, yeah. yeah. No, there's a, uh, there's a wonderful line in, um, uh, Norman McLean wrote a little novella, A River Runs Through It, yes. and his father was a Presbyterian minister. And he ended up taking up with a Methodist girlfriend, And he said, uh, my father did not think much of Methodists. He considered them Baptists that could read. (laughs) And I grew up Baptist. You you, you grew up Baptist, uh, right? I I think part of what we both uh, share in our love of a church like Menlo is that notion that a church ought to be the most thoughtful community in town and that, uh, uh, as Dallas Willard used to say, Jesus would be the first person to tell you, you must follow truth wherever it leads. Right,
1: Right, And to struggle. Yes. That yes. It's okay to struggle with yeah. faith. Yeah. Uh, I I think sometimes we come across as people of faith as saying, "Well, you just don't get it. You you just have to be faithful. Yes. You have to accept." Yeah. And uh, to say to people, it's okay to have questions. Yeah. Uh, some of them can be answered intellectually. Some of them can't. But you it's all right to struggle. And my dad believed it was all right to struggle. As a matter of fact, he, he was known for sometimes giving rather controversial and challenging sermons, oh. like the time he confronted his little Birmingham Presbyterian church with the story of Judas from Judas's perspective. Oh, wow. Oh, yes,
0: yeah. Oh, I'd love to hear that yeah. sermon. He,
1: he was, um, he, he once said that one of his elders said, Reverend, you make us think before you let us feel. Yeah. And he said, I'm not sure that was a compliment. But, <laughs> <laughs> but he took it as a compliment. But he took it as a compliment, right. Yeah.
0: So uh, I'm thinking about you growing up, having those kind of conversations with your father, uh, having experienced what you experienced. Um, has fear played much role in your life and how his faith intersected with that? I don't, uh, I think most people who watch you would say, uh, they don't see much fear mm. in you. Do you ever have those 3 o'clock in the morning moments? Oh, of
1: course, of course. And I'll give you a couple of examples. But I've, I've always tried to acknowledge my fear and mm. anxiety. Mm. I think if you push it down, yeah. it just festers. And if you call it by name, then yes. I think you can work on it. And you can work on it with the Lord because you've called it by name. Uh, during, probably for me, the, the in, on the personal side, the hardest times were the deaths of my parents. Mm. Uh, my mother died when she was sixty-one. She had uh, breast cancer from the time she was forty-six, mm. and I remember my father saying that he had prayed and prayed and prayed. Lord, I don't know how to raise a fifteen-year-old girl. And. She made it till I was 30. And I was so grateful that she had to see me grow up, to see me be be a Stanford professor. But I still had a lot of anger. How could she die so young? Mm -hmm. I was in a grocery store one day, and uh, there was this lady in what I'll call little old lady shoes, you know, kind of flat. And (laughs) and I thought, my mother never got to wear little old lady shoes. It just came back in ways like that. Um, and, of course, my father died in his late 70s and had a much fuller and longer life. But, uh, but that's a time when you can't intellectualize what's yeah. happening because the yeah. pain is so deep. And I think you just have to say, all right, it's the piece that passive understanding. And that's what I always come mm. to in those times. But on a professional level, undoubtedly, it was 9-11. And it was anxiety and fear and uh, remorse and regret. Hmm. If you're the Why remorse well, and if you're the national security advisor on the day that thousands of people die, hmm. you know intellectually that you did everything you knew to do. Yeah. But by definition, you didn't do enough, hmm. and you never ever quite let go of that. And over time, I've had to come to terms with it and process it and hmm. keep praying about it. I was um, at a golf tournament not too long ago, and a man walked up to me, and usually people say something like, thank you for your service, or whatever, and he said, I want to thank you so much for what you did about 9-11. I said, sir, and he said, my wife was on that plane that went into the Pentagon. Wow. And my first reaction is, why are you thanking me? But I was so grateful for his graciousness. Yes. And. That's how it comes. It Mm. comes through the graciousness of others. Nothing that you can do Mm. ever quite removes that sense of remorse, but through the graciousness of others, you You can begin to... God speaks healing into you. He speaks healing through others in that way. But shortly after 9-11 happened, uh, we were all fearful. We were all fearful of the next attack. Um, I remember very well going uh, up to Camp David on that Friday. We, it was some, the events almost blur. You know, that Tuesday, the planes go into the, into the tower and into the Pentagon and then into that field in Pennsylvania, and the whole day is just trying to deal with the aftermath while you're kind of in a state of, of shock as to what's happened. The United States hadn't been attacked on its territory since the War of 1812, and we oh. were wholly unprepared for it. But then, um, on that um, Thursday, the President went out to the Pentagon to thank the first responders. And uh, I hadn't really um, shown emotion. I had to be strong. Everybody had to be strong. And we went to the Pentagon, and we walked among the first responders. And I came back to my apartment, and I thought, what is that smell? And it was the soot that was trapped in my clothes. And I went upstairs, and I showered, and I did some more work. And then about midnight, I flipped on TV. And in Britain, the, uh, the British Royal Band was playing the American National Anthem. And I just broke down at that moment. It was all right to let go a little bit. Yeah. And then the next day, um, we had the National Service at uh, National uh, Cathedral, and I I thought we have great national hymns. Mm -hmm. We were singing um, America the Beautiful and My Country Tis of Thee, and and then the combined armed forces choirs did uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, in our more gentle world, have substituted the words. The words were, as he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. And we've said, let us live live to to make make men free. free, And they used the original words. And somehow we were freed then. And uh, we went up to Camp David that night. The president went to New York. He came back. And we prayed as um, a cabinet, uh, the people who were there. And then uh, John Ashcroft, the attorney general, Mm -hmm. who really can play gospel, (laughs) played the piano and we sang uh, His Eyes on the Sparrow and the great wow. hymns. And again, music intersected for me with faith uh, to give some relief to what had been a really terrible week.
0: Well, I think uh, no, none of us quite knows what we're facing right now. I think that's uh, part of that's what's... That's the uncertainty, yes. Uh, yeah, there's uncertainty right. about how bad, how right. long, how deep, uh, health, economics, and so, and I think probably September 11th is the last moment in our country uh, that has this weight. Right. Uh, and, and so I thought maybe you could uh, talk to uh, the person that's listening right now about how should we pray, how should we think. Um, uh, there's a quote from... Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Is that how you say yes, his name? Yes, I'm never yes, quite yes, sure how right, Alexis to pronounce it. De Tocqueville. Uh, uh, I know a, a favorite of yours uh, on um, what we would think of as individualism. Yes. And he says, in a calm and he said individualism is a calm and considered feeling, which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of his family and friends, with this little society formed to his taste. He gladly leaves society to look after itself. And uh, it does seem that one of the things that crisis can do is, uh, it can go one of two ways. It can cause us all to think selfishly, isolate, uh, or uh, to think of the larger world and how we need each other. And it's pretty clear what direction Jesus would have us go with that. But you're kind of uniquely... uh, uh, situated to talk to us a bit about what you have seen and what we need to know and be thinking about.
1: It's, it's funny, when we're at our best um, as a country,
0: yeah.
1: uh, we are among the most individualistic people in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, and the Constitution, by the way, is our personal guardian. We, we will take you to the Supreme Court if you violate my, my rights, for Brown versus the Board of Education. There's no mm-hmm. other country in the world that actually believes it's their personal protection. So we're very individualistic. But de Tocqueville said something else a little later on, and he talked about these voluntary associations that he couldn't quite figure out. People getting together just to try to do good. Because we also can be very communitarian Mm -hmm. when things are at their worst. And so what we have to do, I think, is to recognize that as individuals, we now are having to take steps as individuals. We're having to make decisions as individuals. They're actually for the good Mm. of all. Um, I've been saying to people, you know, the, Ch- the Chinese um, apparently have flattened the curve of the virus, but they've done it in the old-fashioned authoritarian way. They have demanded people do things. Uh. They will enforce it by force of sin. We've got to depend on 300 million Americans to do the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> but that's who we are. Yeah. And we're seeing across the country. Mm people trying to do the right thing. And so I would say the first thing is to, as individuals, to try to do the right thing for ourselves, mm. which is to take care of ourselves, and, but it also is the right thing for us as a community. And then to reach out in ways to help the most vulnerable. I, I think calling people who may be shut in yes. or isolated, you know, if you're, if you're older yeah. and in, infirm in some way, you really shouldn't go out. But how isolating is that at this time in particular? And so a phone call can matter Mm -hmm. immensely. I think kids have got to be a little bit frightened like I was as a little girl in Birmingham. And so acknowledging it and as my parents did in Birmingham in those days, they couldn't ignore what was going on around Mm -hmm. us. They couldn't say, oh honey, it will be all right they had to acknowledge that it was a tough time. And I think we have to bring that back into our conversations. Uh, we really, really should be grateful for all of the people who are out there yeah. on the front lines. And yeah. these, these healthcare care workers. There was a picture this morning of a nurse with her head just on her desk. She'd worked probably 24 hours. So there are people who are carrying the brunt. And there are vulnerable people, who, for whom life is a hardship anyway, for whom this is going to be a much more of a hardship. And so trying to get outside of yourself and trying to recognize what you might do for somebody else, I think is one way to deal with your own anxiety and your own fear.
0: I was um, texting just today with Scotty Scruggs, who used to be on staff right, here yeah. and serves a church now up in Washington that is literally about a mile away from... Mm-hmm the nursing home facility that has been kind of Ground Zero. And he said they're just devastated in thinking about how do we help people that are caregivers there? How do we help people that are on staff?
1: Right, You always, when when you can reach outside of yourself and help somebody who's in more difficult circumstances than you are, you uh, never ask, why do I not have? You say, why do I have so much? And that's one way, I think, to get through these times. And then for those of us who are people of faith. Um, I think praying, I did during 9-11, just praying to the Lord to help me know what I'm supposed did to it, do. Going
0: through 9-11, did it change how you pray? What, what did it, it, how did it, it impact your prayer life? It changed how
1: I prayed. And, and I, I try from time to time, occasionally I'll relapse, right? Mm-hmm. Your prayer starts to sound like a laundry list of things that, Lord, I would like to have. Yes. <laughs> you know? And if you're not too busy, could you also do this for mm-hmm. me and that for me and this for me? And I, during the time of nine eleven, I think I prayed more for guidance yeah. and for yes. discernment and for wisdom yes. and less for please do this and please do that. I did pray keep us safe. That yeah. I prayed, yeah. uh, but mostly it was for uh, for guidance in how to behave under these circumstances. In, in
0: the in the twelve steps, the eleventh step is uh, pray. Just constant prayer. Keep growing in prayer meditation. Um, praying for the knowledge of god 's will and the power to carry it out right. Right. and I think there's something about for me when i 'm desperate uh, it 's that 's what i 'm praying for god what 's your will and help me to do it and it 's not optional no oh. it 's like oh. in desperate right. times I have to have this or I'm gonna die.
1: i 'm going to die it 's right and i just yeah. don 't even i i can 't even fathom how what it 's like to go through something like this without. A Lord to hang on to his hand. I mean, one of the one of the wonderful things about our faith and about the way that we, particularly um, as as Protestants, believe it's it's a very personal relationship with Christ. Uh, what a friend mm-hmm. we have in Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, who who thinks of the Lord as their friend? Yeah. But that's how I think of the Lord. And uh, somebody sent me during the 9/11 piece an old. Uh, old verse from the Old Testament, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and I I put it up on my wall, and I looked at it time and time again, and I said, prosper us, not harm us, Mm. and I would say to myself, well, I guess you gave your son to to save us, so you couldn't have plans to harm us, and there's also, I think, John, something else that people are feeling, which is not just anxiety, but confusion. This is a confusing time, too, yes, and I think that times like this most often have that element i i 'm not quite clear on what 's going on i don 't know what i 'm supposed to do I, the, the people say well the government's not giving uh, not giving uh, clear guidance and i I have to say I feel a bit for them because you 're in the middle of it, and you don 't actually really even know sometimes what clear guidance is, yeah because you haven't faced these circumstances before. And you you say something and then you realize, oh, that wasn't quite right, I shouldn't have said that. And so it's a hard time for our leaders too. And um, I think we have to try and pray for them Mm. and uh, be a little bit more understanding of how hard it is to be in a position of leadership at this time.
0: Well, um, that actually brings us to the way that uh, we're gonna close this time together Uh, Condi has written a prayer for our nation, and uh, again, part of uh, our legacy, our little tribe within the church has historically been very concerned about uh, the nation without getting into partisan issues, statecraft, and culture, and society, and thinking about them well, and praying for them uh, uh, has been a a big part of our uh, identity. And so we're going to do that right now. And uh, so I want to invite you, wherever you are, uh, you can close your eyes. Not If you're driving a car, don't. But otherwise, uh, this is a moment when all of us together, wherever we are, want to recognize that God is right here. And ultimately, He holds us and our nation and our world in His hands. And so I'm going to ask Condi if she would close this service by leading us all in a time of prayer.
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in trying times. We are anxious. Our minds race with what-ifs and fear of the unknown, and our hearts are heavy for those already lost and those who are in danger. Yet we are so grateful for the privilege of bringing these concerns to you in prayer. We ask that you enter into the depths of our worries and bring comfort, relief, and resilience to all in our country and across the world. Father, we pray especially for those who are most vulnerable to this virus. Please ease any feelings of isolation and loneliness that they might have. We pray for our healthcare workers and first responders who are on the front lines, sacrificing to serve the sick. We ask blessings on our men and women in uniform who are defending us far from home and family bring to all of them encouragement and strength. We are grateful for those who, night and day, work to advance science that can protect us and treat us. We pray for our leaders at home and abroad. Help them to act wisely and humanely and to put aside their differences as they take crucial decisions to guide us through this crisis. And we pray that out of this time of trial, we may find new ways to serve one another and to be closer to you. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul encouraged us to glory also in tribulation, because from it comes patience and experience and hope, which will not be disappointed because of God's love for us. Help us to use this time when we have been forced to slow the pace of our lives, to reflect, to learn how to listen to each other, and to deepen our bonds of community even in this time of separation. And most especially, help us to take these quieter moments to hear your voice and your call with greater clarity. O Lord, we know that we are called to be faithful to you for you are relentlessly faithful to us. And so we ask for your comfort in our lives, but also for the grace to behave toward one another's, as Jesus Christ called us to do. To treat each other with kindness and respect, to be patient and calm, and to be generous in caring for and praying for those who are most in need. These things we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. Our hope this week is that this message both inspired you and helped you connect to God better. We also hope that you have several questions coming out of this week. And so if that's the case, please shoot us a note at menlo.church. And we hope to see you next week.